0: I'll try that again, now I have a mic. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn to 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 to 9. Every so often I'm late in this service because traditions goes over and I'm just long-winded. But today was the first time I was late to traditions. The clock out there by the door is 10 minutes slow. Who knew? So I went over there to greet like I do about 10 minutes before. And Jeff said, I don't want you to be panicked, but uh, it's two minutes into the service. And I walked in and the worship leader was up there fumbling through his Bible, trying to find something, anything to fill the time. And uh, so I'm glad I'm on time at least to one service today. Let's uh, go ahead and pray. Father God, I thank you for your inspired and errant word. I thank you for this series of which we look at texts and topics that are often misunderstood. And today is no different. And so, Father, as we look at a text that I suppose is socially unacceptable, a topic that is often not talked about as it ought. I pray that we would be faithful to your word and that you would allow our hearts to be shaped by biblical truth rather than what we would prefer or what we would imagine or even what we would think is acceptable to society. Father, we want to be acceptable to you, not necessarily to society. Guide us, we pray, O Lord. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. This past spring, I had the honor of going with 42 others to Rome, and while we were in Rome, we went to the Vatican. And among the many sites, we went to the Sistine Chapel. If you're familiar with the Sistine Chapel that was created by Pope Sextus, that's how it got the name Sistine, since 1492, you know it is the year in which Columbus sailed the ocean blue. It also happened to be the first year that papal conclaves were held in the Sistine Chapel. And since 1492, and very specifically since 1870, every time a new pope needs to be elected, those cardinals under the age of 80, that's a law that came into effect in 1972, will go into the Sistine Chapel, they will lock themselves in, and they will seek who is the next pope. And if you're familiar with the Sistine Chapel, it holds about 3,000. It has a number of famous paintings. Perhaps the most famous is the Last Judgment, which is the ceiling. They're going to put up a picture of the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. And if you're familiar with it, yes, we clothed a few people. Probably broke the law by doing it, but I had horrors of half-dressed people on very large screens. And so... Uh, I didn't do it, so if it's against the law, I'll tell you who did it. And she can go to prison, and I will visit her because she did it for me. Well, in this picture, you have to understand that uh, when it was created, history tells us all of Rome came out to see it. I don't know what that means, but many came And those who came to see it were divided. Artists loved it. The church was quite concerned about it. We'll start about the art community. They loved it. Think about it. He created this 65 feet in the air. Now, spoiler alert. He did not lie on his back to create this. Hollywood gives us that picture in 1965, in a movie called The Ecstasy and Agony, in which Charlton Heston took on Michelangelo and laid on his back to paint The Last Judgment. Prior to 1965, nobody had ever considered that he painted it on his back. In fact, Michelangelo made a set of stairs and set of scaffolding that he used for the nine years In which he painted it and he writes poems about how much agony and pain was included in standing on the scaffolding for nine years to create it so the art community thought it was brilliant the church however was quite divided that actually is exactly what happened in Europe you remember in Europe during the 16th century we have family versus family We have town versus town. We have city-state versus city-state. We have nation versus nation. Because the universal church, that's what the word Catholic means, it means universal, is a mess. Everyone agrees, whether you're Catholic or Protestant, the universal church was a mess. And so a series of protests emerge. That's what Protestant means, protest. And some split from it and created the protest reformation, the Protestant reformation, and those who remained had the Catholic counter-reformation. In other words, everyone knew the church was a mess. It's just a matter of whether you stay in the church and reform the church, or you break from the church and reform based on your convictions. That's what's happening in Europe. And Michelangelo is an employee of the Catholic Church. But he's not Catholic. He's Protestant. He is a part of the spirituale. The spirituale is a group, a secretive group, that believes that salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ alone. It's through the shed blood of Christ. And there is nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. And you can imagine the tension. His paycheck comes from a group that has one set of convictions. And his heart is from a group that has another set of convictions. His closest friend is Colomy. He has a platonic relationship with her. And she actually faces the Inquisition because she is part of the spiritual The same group he's a part of. But nobody knows it, and his poetry is not released until after his death. Or else it is possible that Michelangelo also would have faced the Inquisition. Let me read from the Spirituale, the handbook. The justice of Christ is sufficient to make us children of grace without any good works of ours. Let me read from Michelangelo. Lord, all efforts cannot make a man blessed without your blood. And it is this Protestant Catholic conviction that is found in this painting, The Last Judgment, in the most famous chapel of Catholicism. So here we have Christ and his mother Mary. So they're going to give us a blow up of that understand what the preparatory drawing was. The preparatory drawing, which the church agreed to, did not have Mary like this. It had Mary intercessing on behalf of people and pleading for their souls as an intercessor, as an intermediary to go to heaven. That's what was agreed upon but when Michelangelo painted it, he has her acquiescing to the command and the lordship of Christ. He probably used my physique, by the way, when he painted that. And Christ alone is in rule, and there is no other intermediary, no other intercessory. Then there are a number of individuals who are martyrs for the faith. Here's Bartholomew. And this is his skin, because how was he martyred? He was flayed alive. And Michelangelo wanted us to know that even a martyr, even a martyr who was flayed alive does not have the works needed to get to heaven. Salvation is by faith in the grace of God. By the way, Michelangelo painted his own face on the flayed skin. He wanted everyone to know that even someone as great as Michelangelo needed the grace of God in order to be saved. And then back to the whole picture. Here we have on one side, those who go to heaven. This, it's kind of like that. And on this side, those who go to hell. And this is the River Styx. And this is Charon, the mythical boat taker who takes people to hell or Hades. And if you know anything about the Last Judgment, you know that Michelangelo was using Dante's Inferno, the Divine Comedy, written in 1321. And if you've read the Divine Commentary or the Divine Comedy, it doesn't look like this. Because in the Divine Commentary, you have heaven, you have hell and you have purgatory, except he left it out. And so you can imagine that this being on the most famous chapel in Catholicism is a bit of a tension because he's employed by one faith system and he paints another faith system. I think he paints what comes out of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 to 9. A literal eternal heaven and a literal eternal hell. Allow me to read from 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 5 to 9. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. As you and I begin in verse 5, it says, For which we are suffering. That's how it begins. The implication is that if you and I know Christ, if we're living for Christ, if we're honoring Christ, there will be suffering in our life. And if there's no suffering in our life, we have every reason to wonder if we're really sold out for the Lord. It says, for which we are suffering. We would rather it say, for which we may suffer, for which we might suffer. Occasionally, we might think about suffering. It says, for which we are suffering. I would say that perhaps a small degree of suffering might even be that when we stand on biblical truth that is countercultural. We know that individuals, maybe even some here today, will be turned off because we talk about topics that are uncomfortable and societally unacceptable, like an eternal heaven and, yes, an eternal hell. And the text tells us that those who suffer, there will be punishment On those who cause the suffering and that God will inflict vengeance upon them. That's what the text actually says. Now is that the primary purpose of hell? It is not. The primary purpose of hell is verse 8. That's made clear in the text. Those who do not know or love God, those who do not love his gospel, hell is a just, right, eternal place of suffering For those who do not love God, and for those who do not love his gospel. Why? Because the Lord considers it a monstrous act of rebellion if he has paid the price through his son, Jesus Christ. If he loved us enough to allow his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for us, and we will not embrace Christ, The Lord thinks that that is a monstrous violation worthy of an eternal separation from Him in a literal place called hell. So we read the following in John chapter 3, starting in verse 16, a verse we all know, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Don't miss the beginning. God loved us. God loves us. Present tense. His love was so great that he who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin for us. He who was only deity also became man, the God-man, lived a perfect life and laid down his life for us and offers salvation to us. And if we reject that, God says it is just and right for one to be separated in a literal place called hell for all of eternity. Verse 17, for God did not send his son, Jesus, into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That was God's desire, that was and is God's intent. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And yet and yet, we live in a day and age in which many deny the eternality of hell. In this regard I think of an event that took place in the middle of the 20th century. It was in London. A princess came out of the church and She said to the rector who was greeting people, she said, Is it really true, sir, that there is a literal eternal hell? And the rector said, Well, Jesus taught it. The apostles taught it. It's in the Bible. An Orthodox church has believed it for the last 20th centuries. And she said, Well, then why aren't you telling us about it? And that was 70 years ago. And we shy away from the topic more and more. Or we have churches that deny a literal eternal hell. We have pastors that deny a literal eternal hell. Not because they can reinterpret Scripture well, but because it's culturally unacceptable. I think of Rob Bell in his book in 2011, Love Wins the eternal destiny of those who go to heaven, those who go to hell, and the eternal destiny of everyone who has ever lived. That's essentially his title. And he pastored at one time a very large church, 10,000, in attendance in Michigan. And he writes this book, Love Wins. And he tells us this. He says that when you die, if you don't know Christ, you go to hell But you're only there a short time when you realize that you could go to heaven and you embrace Christ and his love and love wins and hell is empty and everyone goes to heaven. That's what Rob Bell's book says, but that's not what Jesus' book says. Jesus' book says that it is appointed for man to die once and after that the judgment. And what we do with Christ today Determines destiny for all of eternity. The reality of hell should cause Christ followers to so yearn to share the gospel. To want to tell neighbors and friends and loved ones about salvation by faith in Christ alone. It should cause us to want to risk Telling others about salvation in Jesus. It should cause us to want to risk asking people to come to church where they'll hear the gospel. Because as verses 7 and 8 teach us, Jesus is coming again. And it says it will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Matthew 16, verse 27, puts it this way. It says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. It speaks of fire. It speaks of repayment. It speaks of mighty angels. Probably not a a wimpy tinkerbell, but angels of judgment, who will bring eternal punishment. Verse 8, on those who do not know God and those who do not love his gospel. Two categories. Those who do not know God and those who do not love his gospel. Think with me about this. Those who do not know God, they might be in a closed access country a country that might be dominated by a non-gospel-centered religion or faith, and you say, well, they will die without knowing the name of Christ. And please come next week, because I want to interact with this topic for the entire message. But in a nutshell, this is what Scripture says. In Romans chapter 1, it says, "...the truth of God may be known by all that God has created," and therefore we are without excuse. Psalm 8 says the glory of God may be determined through the natural creation, the natural revelation, and therefore when we deny God, we are without excuse. And Romans 2 says that the law of God is written on our hearts. Nomos, law, referring to the Ten Commandments, and the first two commandments of the Decalogue is that we cannot commit idolatry. And we're told by Scripture that we innately know because of creation that there is a God and because of what is written on our hearts that we can only worship the one true God. And we'll talk about if someone doesn't deny that next week, what happens. But essentially Scripture says because of natural revelation, because the law of God is written on our hearts, nobody has excuse to reject the gospel. Nobody. That's the first category. The second is those who deny the gospel. That's referring to those who are not in a closed access country, a country like ours where you can get a Bible, you can turn on the radio and hear some biblical preaching, you can go to church, you can get books, you probably know people who have heard the gospel. You may even come to a church like Highland where the gospel is preached. And scripture is very clear to whom much is given, much more is expected. The more gospel light we have, the more culpable we are to the judgment and the punishment that God will give. Hell is a terrible place. It's an eternal place for all who go there but it is a place where some will receive greater judgment than others. It's eternal for all, it's terrible for all, but some, because of the amount of light they have, will face a stricter judgment than others. Isn't that what Luke 12, 47 and 48 says? And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready, ready for what? Death over the return of Christ, or did not act according to his will, will receive a severe beating, a strict punishment. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating, for the wages of sin is death, and all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God, will receive a light beating. Every one to whom much was given of him much will be required. And from him to whom they have entrusted much, they will demand the more. Isn't that also what Jesus said in Matthew 11? I think maybe Andrew might have read this in the message he gave. But Matthew 11:20 20 to 24, it reads this way. Then he, Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done. So these were cities that heard the teaching, they saw the miracles, yet they did not change. They saw the mighty works that had been done, but they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for the mighty works done in you have been done in Tyre and Sidon. Those were archetypical wicked cities. So even if those Old Testament wicked cities, if they had had the teaching, if they had heard the... The message is, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon. More bearable for two cities and inhabitants that are in hell than for you, it says. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. And you remember in this chapter, Jesus cursed Capernaum. And if you've been to Capernaum, you know that all it is is ruins. Capernaum has never been rebuilt. It's lakefront, literally. It's lakefront property. It's never been rebuilt. Jesus cursed Capernaum. That's a pretty big deal. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more terrible... Or tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. For the unbeliever, verse 9 is clear. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Let me look at each of those, punishment. Punishment is suffering. Eternal lasts forever. Destruction, alathras. That's where sometimes we get into trouble. And so some have read the word destruction and they say, well, okay, that means that when you die, you go to hell for a small amount of time, it can't be that long, and then you cease to exist, annihilation, because the Bible says destruction, olothros, except that's not what it means. Olothros doesn't mean cease to exist, it means useless, it means worthless. It means empty. It means that you have an existence that is of no value, no worth, an empty existence separated from God. That's what alathras, valueless, means. If we believe the Bible, and I believe it with every fiber of my being, hell never ends. So let me summarize with a few thoughts. First, I believe our hearts ought to break over this topic of hell. I was with some pastors earlier this week, and we do some kind of mentoring thing four or five times a year they come to Highland, and, um, and we were talking, and a few of us were talking about individuals, and uh, one pastor said, you know, he knew somebody that, that seemed almost to relish hell to not at all feel the need to share the gospel, who would say things like, you know, they're just going to hell, it doesn't really matter. That should not be the heart of Christ followers. The heart of Christ followers cares and loves people and yearns that people come to Christ and and yearns for the opportunity to share the gospel with others. And to bring them to know the joy of salvation in Christ. And brings people to a church where they'll hear the gospel. The heart of Christ. 2 Peter 3.9. This ought to be our heart. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. As some count slowness. But is patient toward you. Aren't we thankful for that? He's patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. That's the heart of God. That should be our heart to yearn that people come to a saving knowledge of Christ. And this leads to our second point. We have the opportunity to share the gospel. We are there for Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We have the joy and the responsibility to implore people to come to Christ. Third, hell exists because some have resisted the truth of God that is known in creation. They haven't loved God and they do not love his gospel. And God gives people what they they have desired, what they have pursued, a life without him. Dr. John Hanna, a professor of history at Dallas Theological Seminary, he wrote this, no one who is ever in hell will be able to say to God, you put me here. And no one who is in heaven will be able to say, I put myself here. Think about that. No one who is in hell can say, it's your fault, God. Isn't that the truth of Luke 16, where we have Lazarus and the rich man goes to hell, and he says, hey, God, will you send an angel to my brothers so that they don't end up here? Do you know what he's saying? It's your fault, God. At least, if you didn't care enough about me to send an angel, send an angel to my brothers. And you remember what the reply is. They have the law and the prophets, just like you did. You had light. You resisted light. You can't blame me for where you are. And if we go to heaven, we can't say we got there because of ourselves. We got there because of the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ who paid the penalty of sin and offers us eternal life. And finally, we need to remember Hebrews 9:27 is appointed for man to die once and after that the judgment. Purgatory was created in the 12th century. It's not found in the Bible that teaches a literal heaven and a literal hell eternal for the believer and the unbeliever. Annihilation misunderstands the word destruction which doesn't mean the end of existence. It means worthlessness, useless, uselessness. And Rob Bell's love wins. Universalism, it's not taught in Scripture either. Instead, Scripture says today is the day of salvation. Today, this day. We have no idea what will happen when we leave the room. Maybe we have years and decades left. Maybe we don't. We don't know. But today we have heard that salvation belongs to no one else but Christ, who offers it to us by grace, what we don't deserve, as an act of mercy. He paid the penalty of our sin, that if by faith we would say, I believe in you, Jesus, come into my heart, forgive me, and become my Savior, we will pass. From an eternity separated from God to an eternity with God. And we who know Christ have the joy of telling others about Jesus. Don't leave here today without knowing Christ. And don't leave here today without a commitment to share Christ with others. Let's pray. Father God... uh, I thank you for the bold words that you inspired Paul to write in 2 Thessalonians 1, to 5-9. Of course, in no way did we do justice to them. But Father, we know that, among other things, they teach that there is a literal heaven and that you offer it to all who by faith receive Christ. And a literal hell for all who reject the truth of God, reject the gospel. And Father, if someone here today does not know Christ, I pray that they would believe and receive Jesus, ask for forgiveness, ask to be cleansed, and for your Son to be the ruler of our lives. And Father, give us a boldness to share the gospel and broken hearts to really care and love people, love them enough to tell them about salvation in your Son. We ask these things in the name of Christ, amen.